It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. It's Living the Bream with host of Fox News at Night, Shannon Bream. All right, this week on Living the Bream, we have a guest who could not be more timely and his book could not be more timely. There's no way he could have known uh, when he was writing this and putting it together the exact moment that we would be in. Joining us today, we have a GOP senator from Texas, Ted Cruz. He is a shortlister himself for the Supreme Court, and um, he has written a brand new book called One Vote Away, How a Single Supreme Court Seat Can Change History. He's going to be on the Senate Judiciary Committee that is now seeing us through this next moment in history with the nominee judge, Amy Coney Barrett. Much to discuss. Welcome to Live in the Brain, Senator. Well, thank you, Shannon. It's great to be with you. Okay, so obviously in writing this book, you go through your own experiences. You've been a clerk there. I first met you when you were arguing cases there. Um, And you talk about how tight some of these critical landmark decisions are. But did you have any idea when you were writing this book that we would be where we are today? You know, I I didn't. That that, that was pure serendipity. I mean, I I wrote the book this spring and summer, and, and it was during COVID lockdown. So I was at home in Houston working from home. And so I pulled out my laptop and started writing in the living room. And uh, obviously, I didn't know we'd have a Supreme Court vacancy in October, uh, but I, I knew we'd have a presidential election in November. And and so I wrote the book really with an eye to the election and to laying out the stakes, because I think this is one of, if not the biggest issues in the election. And And for me, it was the single biggest reason I voted for Donald Trump over Hillary Clinton is judicial nominations and the Supreme Court in particular. In 2016, we had Justice Scalia's vacancy. Actually, the book opens with the day Justice Scalia died. And, and I, was, uh, I, I was in South Carolina. It was the day of the South Carolina presidential debate. And so I was sitting in debate prep and, and my body guy came in and, and, and told us the news. We actually knew couple hours before the news became public because the local Texas sheriff, Justice Scalia, as you know, passed away mm-hmm. at a hunting lodge in West Texas. And the sheriff called both John Cornyn and me and told, told us, hey, we just, just found Justice Scalia dead. And, and so the book starts with that and, and my calling as soon as the news became public, calling for that seat to be held vacant. And it, and it goes through to present day, and, and as we find ourselves in the battle for, for Judge Barrett, that, that, that shows really that the, the, the stakes have continued and have only gotten higher. So what do you say at this moment to those who will point to 2016 and say that seat was held open, Merrick Garland was President Obama's nominee, he didn't get a chance. They'll say the distinction you guys are making this time is one without a difference. And that if you would spend months holding that seat open, why not wait a few weeks until this very contentious election is over to, quote, give the people a voice this time around? Well, look, I I think Donald Trump was elected to nominate principled constitutionalists to the court. That's a big part of why he got elected. And uh, the Senate Republican majority was elected to confirm principled constitutionalists. You know, if you look at the history uh, this is, in both instances, what the Senate did in 2016, what the Senate is doing now, uh, is consistent with 200 years of precedent in the Senate. 29 times we've had vacancies on the Supreme Court that occurred in a presidential election year. 
Presidents always nominate someone, whether you're a Democrat or Republican, a president nominates someone. 19 of those times, the Senate and the president have been of the same party. The Senate's confirmed 17 of those. And so confirming Judge Barrett is entirely consistent with two centuries of history. 10 of those times, the president and the Senate have been from different parties. And, and in those instances, the Senate has confirmed only two of them. And, and so the pattern, and, and you know, that's not just random. Um, it, it's not just partisan. It, it is, it's actually part of the constitutional system of checks and balances, that, that the Constitution assigns the responsibility of, of naming a new Supreme Court justice to the president and the Senate to confirm, and you need both together. And, and this was a major issue in the election in 2016. Uh, it was Donald Trump promised to nominate justices in the mold of Scalia and Thomas. That was dramatically different from, from the liberal judicial activists that Hillary Clinton promised to nominate. And the American people had that choice. Look, I, I continue to believe that had Justice Scalia not passed away in 2016, Hillary Clinton would have been the president. The, the, that, that vacancy decided the election for the president. And it was front and center in the 2014 Senate elections where the Republicans took the majority was front and center in 2016 when, again, we, we kept the majority, and in 2018 when we grew the majority. And so at the end of the day, it's the people that decide and the checks and balances between the president and the Senate. That's how it's supposed to operate. Do you worry, as some do uh, on the GOP side of things, that this time around it will cost you Senate seats because this is the seat that's being um, vacated by the death of Justice Ginsburg, a liberal icon, a progressive icon, um, and that the left is determined to make you all pay should you go ahead and seat a new justice that's certainly not going to follow her uh, in many respects and not in their ideological or judicial philosophy. So I don't, and, and, and I think that has the politics backwards. The left, there's no doubt the left is energized and enraged, but I think they were already pissed off. They already hate Trump. I, I don't think they can get more angry you know, I've joked, it's like spinal tap. Now it goes to 11. So they're really pissed off. They're going to show up and vote. I think this election battle in the month of October is going to end up helping President Trump and helping Republicans in the Senate because it's going to give everyone else a reason to show up and vote. And it's going to energize voters, much the way Justice Kavanaugh, the battle over Justice Kavanaugh and the disgraceful behavior of Senate Democrats uh, resulted in a really good election for Republicans because it energized voters. And, and actually, that's, that's a lot of the point uh, behind the book, uh, One Vote Away, uh, which is every chapter of the book takes on a different constitutional right. So there's a chapter on free speech, a chapter on religious liberty, a chapter on the Second Amendment, uh, a chapter on democracy and elections. And what it does is it, it takes the readers behind the scenes, behind the curtain, to, to what's really going on at the court. It, it, it's not, this is not an academic book. It's not a book for lawyers. I mean, lawyers, I think, will enjoy it, but you don't have to be a lawyer to, to really appreciate and, and understand this book. Look, I think a lot of people look at the Supreme Court and, and they know it's important, but, but it's kind of confusing. It's hard to know what's going on. I mean, you covered the court for a long time. You understand that institution, but a lot of Americans don't. And what I try to do in this book is, is make the issues come alive. And, and so I tell war stories of, of big landmark cases of the court, many of which I help litigate, 
and, and, and I, I take people behind the scenes to understand who the justices are, what's at stake, who the litigants are. Sometimes these cases have fascinating backstories, and I, and I walk through a lot of that, and, and, and it helps people understand, you know, an issue after issue. I mean, the votes or the decisions are 5-4, 5-4, one justice away, and I think in terms of the American people, I think actually Republicans, there is a large majority in our country that wants free speech protected. And, and we have had four justices willing to restrict the free speech rights of Americans. I think there's a large majority of Americans that want religious liberty protected. Everyone's religious liberty. And yet four justices have been willing to take that away. I think the same is true on the Second Amendment. And so these are winning issues, I believe. And, and, and they're really good for us to be focusing on. Well, because you talk about the one vote, and a lot of times people don't understand, as you do, and as you lay out about what happens behind the scenes, the fact that um, they take that initial vote, but that can change. And it does many times where the justices will write their opinions, hoping to bring someone from the other side over to them, um, which again, that one vote changes everything, the outcome of what becomes the law of the land, essentially. Um, Tell us a little bit about that. I mean, the fact that that first vote isn't set in stone. There's still so yeah. much effort that goes behind, on behind the scenes with these colleagues trying to persuade each other through their writing, through their arguments, to bring us something that could change history. Well, one of the most famous instances of it is, is actually a, an instance I talk about in the book, and it's, it's Obamacare, and the first time Obamacare was before the Supreme Court. And, and the public reports, and, and typically these negotiations are not public, but there were for whatever reason, a lot of leaks about this, and I have no reason to doubt the public reports on it, although I can't independently confirm them. The public reports were that John Roberts voted initially with the more conservative justices to strike down Obamacare, and that he switched his vote months after conference, and and he ended up ruling to uphold Obamacare, and that switch, you know, John Roberts is someone who I know quite well, Roberts was a a law clerk for Chief Justice William Rehnquist. I was also a law clerk for Rehnquist. We we were at different times, but we've known each other 25 years. And, you know, I have to say I've been really disappointed by by Roberts' tenure. And and one of the things I write in the book, John Roberts has become the new Sandra Day O'Connor. And and I think the beginning of that was that Obamacare case. and, And what Roberts ended up doing, you know, you read that opinion. I still remember reading that opinion when it came down. The first 80% of the opinion is terrific. So, so there, there was a challenge to the individual mandate, which was the fine that Obamacare put on people to force them to buy health insurance, even if they couldn't afford it. The Supreme Court concludes that that, that mandate is not consistent with the Commerce Clause. That's really a, a strong conservative jurisprudential ruling. Supreme Court concludes that, that the conditions Obamacare put on federal payments to the states to force them to expand Medicaid, that those were unconstitutional. They were contrary to the spending clause. So you read the first 80% of the opinion, you're like, wow, this is a really strong opinion. And at the very end, Roberts does a little sleight of hand where Obamacare refers to the individual mandate as a penalty. And it refers to, a pe- it refers to it as a penalty many, many times. Roberts simply flips it and calls it a tax. Now, nowhere in the statute does it call it a tax. And, and under Supreme Court case law, Congress has a lot of power to pass taxes. Tax, the taxing power is a really broad power. 
Now, there's a reason Congress didn't call it a tax. Obama said repeatedly, it's not a tax, it's not a tax. Remember, he promised not to raise taxes on anyone making less than $250,000 a year. So if he admitted Obamacare was a tax hike on a bunch of low-income and, and middle-income Americans, then he broke one of his key promises. So he was invested politically in saying it's not a tax. Well, Roberts just said, let's call it a tax. It is a tax. And then he upheld it. And, and one of the things that I try to explain is, is that I believe the reason Roberts did that, I think he thought he was preserving the legitimacy. Mm-hmm. Of the court. I think he thought he was keeping the court out of politics. Let the political world worry about Obamacare. I'm going to keep the court out of it. And, and in fact, I think he, he believed he was acting much like John Marshall did in Marbury versus Madison. And I described some of the machinations of Marbury versus Madison at the very beginning of the history of the court. But ironically, I think John Roberts' decision in the Obamacare case will go down as one of the most political decisions in the history of the court. And I think it weakened the legitimacy of the court quite a bit for Roberts to behave like a politician and not a Supreme Court justice. And there's been a lot of analysis about that, about his years on the court, how um, we very much get the distinct feeling that he he wants it to be apolitical. He doesn't want to get dragged into. And I think about all the things that are pending before them right now, um, a number of these emergency stays regarding ballots and mail-in ballots and signature requirements. And I got to think that this year is not one of his favorites because there are so many of those things that he rather the court could stay out of. But so many of these things are going to end up there. And that's one of the debates or concerns about this nomination now of Judge Barrett, that, you know, by every estimation I hear of of GOP plans, uh, that they would like to have her seated and confirmed before Election Day, meaning if there are election, we have shades of Gore v. Bush, 2000, you know, election disputes to be handled and taken care of, that um, she could be possibly seated there. So they'll have nine and not eight. Yep. So they're just, this is one of those crazy years we will all remember as it goes down in history. Live in the Bream continues in a moment. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. We're talking about the book, One Vote Away, How a Single Supreme Court Seat Can Change History with Senator Ted Cruz, and I, I hasten to add, as I did before, Supreme Court shortlister himself, because who knows? You just never know what the future may bring. So as we, as we look to the Senate Judiciary confirmation hearings that are coming up in just a matter of days, Democrats continue to have objections on a number of levels. They say this is an illegitimate process. They also say, with at least two members of the committee now testing positive for covid that the Capitol's just not a safe place. You can't have these hearings in person. My thought is they might be a little bit more sedate if you don't have the public in there like we watched with the Kavanaugh hearings. That certainly made them very interesting and fiery at times. Um, But what do you make of that assessment that you all can't do this safely? Oh, look, I think it's mostly political. Um, The Democrats opposed confirming Judge Barrett before she was nominated, the instant she was nominated, and they they oppose it now. And, you know, the point about, well, we're going to have hearings starting on Monday. The hearings are going to be in person. Most of the senators will be there. Judge Barrett will be there. But some of the senators may be virtual, may be using, maybe on on computers and virtual. We've done, I think, 150 hearings in the Senate virtually since COVID started. And and so I, I think their objections, they don't want this vacancy filled. So they're going to raise whatever objections they can. 
I don't think it's going to succeed. And actually, one of the reasons it's not going to succeed is, is what you just said a minute ago uh, about the election coming up and Bush versus Gore. And, you know, there's a chapter in the book on Bush versus Gore. So I, I was part of the legal team that represented George W. Bush. Um, I, I was at the time a young lawyer. I was down on the, on the Bush campaign in Austin. Um, and in fact, Heidi and I, my wife and I, we met on that campaign. We were both in cubicles just about 20, 30 feet apart from each other. And uh, I, I tell the story of Bush versus Gore where, you know, that night, election night, standing out in the rain at four in the morning on Congress Avenue. Um, and uh, I'll, I'll confess, I was three sheets to the wind. We had been having an election party. It was party. a night. <laughs> <laughs> it was a night. It, it was. Um, and, and initially, uh, the press called the election for Al Gore. Then they reversed it and called it for George W. Bush. And then the results in Florida were very close. They called Bush as the winner, but Al Gore sent in an army of lawyers in Florida to challenge the election. And, and so I describe how I got on a plane and flew to Tallahassee and I was there the entire recount. And, and it was, you know, it's interesting. Some of the movies and books that have been written about Bush versus Gore at times, they, they describe it as this, you know, careful, strategic, very well-planned, all of that's nonsense. It was utter chaos. I mean, I've, I've never seen anything as crazy. We had in the war room a whiteboard and with a chart, there were seven lawsuits all pending simultaneously, mm -hmm. any one of which could cost the presidency of the United States. And, and we went twice to the Supreme Court. The first time we won unanimously, nine to nothing, the Supreme Court concluded that the Florida Supreme Court had gotten it wrong. They vacated the decision of the Florida Supreme Court. They sent the case back down. Florida Supreme Court was a partisan Democratic court um, and, and basically told the U.S. Supreme Court, go jump in a lake. They basically thumbed their nose at the Supreme Court ruling. And so the second time we went to the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, we ended up on the critical question of remedy, the outcome, the court divided 5-4. It was one vote away. And uh, I, I was there for both oral arguments. And in fact, one story that I, I tell uh, in the book, Shannon, so the night of the second decision, um, I don't know, it was about 9, 10 o'clock at night, I get a call on my cell phone from the clerk's office of the Supreme Court, from an old friend of mine that I'd known from, from when I was clerking for the Chief Justice. And uh, the clerk's office called, said, we have a decision, and said, Ted, can we fax it to you? I said, sure. So that tells you the time it was. They didn't email it. They faxed mm -hmm. it. Um, so I pull it off the fax machine, and Jim Baker is there. Jim Baker's leading the George W. Bush team. And, and I take it into to Baker's office. I said, Secretary Baker, we've, we've got a decision. And he says, well, what does it mean? Because as you remember, it wasn't immediately apparent what the decision meant. It was like 25, 30 pages long. There wasn't a just sort of headline on the front, Bush wins. Affirmed. It, yeah, it was <laughs> right. more complicated. So I'm sitting there reading it quickly in this little darkened room. Baker is standing over my shoulder, looking over my shoulder. And, and on the TV, there are reporters standing on the steps with the opinion, trying to figure out what mm -hmm. it means. I don't know if you, were you one of those reporters? Shannon? I was not. I'll tell you my story after you finish yours. But I remember watching them thinking, this is a total nightmare. And nobody knew what it meant. So I read it quickly. And after a couple of minutes, I looked at Baker and said, well, it means it's all over. We win. And Baker looked at me. He nodded. 
he picked up the phone. He calls George W. Bush. George W. Bush is at his ranch in Crawford. And, and Bush answers the phone and, and Baker goes, well, Mr. President, how does it feel? Mm-hmm. And, and I, I mean, I had chills go down my spine. Um, Heidi said afterwards, she, she was giving me a hard time saying, well, it's a good thing you were right. You, you didn't miss something in the exactly. opinion. You know, oh, crap. Footnote 11. This is all like, right. but, but it was utter and complete chaos. And I think there's a real chance 2020 will be much worse than, than 2000, that instead of just one state, we could see litigation in three, four, five states. And we could see litigation filed by Biden. We could see litigation filed by Trump. We could see litigation filed by both of them, where mm-hmm. one wins one state, another wins another state. And if the court only has eight justices, it can divide 4-4. And a 4-4 court can't decide anything. And so we could see months of chaos and uncertainty. That's one of the big reasons I think we owe it to the voters to ensure a full nine justice court so you can get a resolution and ensure that we're following the law. So tell me your story. Where, where, where well, were you? I was a lawyer in Florida mm-hmm. and um, I was just transitioning over into news and journalism. And so because I was a lawyer and I was kind of working in the newsroom as a producer and behind the scenes and answering the phones and just kind of trying to learn the business, they did start putting me on the air. But I remember watching the wires because as you said there were multiple lawsuits i'd be ready to go on the air and then something would cross the wires and say this court just struck it down this court just held it up i mean it was insane i mean we did have to keep a chart going too because it was almost impossible to report on it unless you were literally changing your scripts every you know every time the wires started beeping at you so I remember it well. And I remember thinking like, wow, what have I done? I'm leaving my law practice to come into this thing. And I'm still being a lawyer. I'm just doing it on TV now. So yeah, being in Florida during that time, um, I learned a lot. I hope you're wrong about this year, but I I don't doubt you because there are so many cases being litigated right now in states across the country. That's laying a framework for maybe where part of these um, decisions go after the fact if we're fighting over mail-in ballots. And as I said, signatures and postmarks and all kinds of things. Um, it will be interesting to watch. You and I will have a front row seat uh, as we watch it play out again. The book is One Vote Away, How a Single Supreme Court Seat Can Change History. We know it's true. We'll see um, as that continues forward where we see it to happen in cases again. We'll be watching the uh, hearings as they kick off for Judge Barrett on October 12th. In the meantime, thanks for making time to stop in with us, Senator Ted Cruz. Shannon, thanks a lot. And I, I hope folks go on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, anywhere you get books. I, I think you'll find it interesting. I, I will say, unlike most politician books suck. Um, <laughs> if you don't say so yourself. <laughs> look, they do, most of them are vapid and there's a ghostwriter and, and the guy doesn't even know what, what's in it. This is something I wrote. This is, this is inside war stories that I think you'll find interesting. Mm-hmm. And I think as we go into these battles, it'll help arm you to just talk with your friends and families and, and understand better what's going on. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think a lot of people want, want that. Yeah. And as a, a legal nerd who loves covering the Supreme Court, um, I am a huge fan of it. And um, I think that I want more Americans to understand why it matters to them. This yeah. book is a great way to do that and to get the inside scoop on a number of big cases uh, that you have argued and others have as well. Senator, thank you. Thank you, Shannon. God bless. 
Kudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Kudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts.